Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. morning. My name is Dave, and it's, uh, if you're new to our church, it's my privilege to serve as lead pastor here. I've been here since 1995, and uh, I really love the experience I've had as a pastor to watch the same church for that long of a time and see what God is doing in different people's lives. And someday when I write a book the, about the author part on the jacket's going to say he led a church in the suburbs of Chicago that quadrupled in size every week, right, between 10 and 10, 15. Um, I, just, I just remember when I was here at 10, I turned around, it was a small group Bible study, and then I came up here and I was like, hey, everyone's here. I'm going to encourage you to set your alarms on Sunday mornings just maybe 10 minutes earlier and... I really do, all joking aside, I do believe God is worthy of our very best all the time. No matter what we're going through, he's always worthy of our best. And something as small as just being there when we start together, I think that honors him. And so I want to encourage you to be mindful of that each week. I don't know if there's any way to lower these interrogation lights (laughs) that are... (laughs) I'm feeling really nervous. Just, I feel like I'm being interrogated right now. But um, if you can't, it's not a big deal. The title of the message this morning, we're going to continue plugging along in our series on the Gospel of John. And we've come to chapter 2 and that uh, very familiar passage that takes place at a wedding celebration in a town called Cana. And one of the things that I really love about Jesus, the person, and the the accounts of his ministry and life is just how down-to-earth everything is. It's not like Greek mythology where there was so much weird, crazy stuff, but it was just so rooted in normal life. The gospel that saves us rose out of the fabric of real life, the kind that you and I can experience. Yes, there were supernatural elements but there was such a realness to everything surrounding Jesus, which I've always really loved. The text this morning is John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Here's what it says. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Thank you. Okay. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. 
He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best to last. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. I said early on that I love how um, not stuffy the story of Jesus is. And, you know, this is a significant week. When it says the third day, it's saying this is the third day into the big launch of his earthly ministry. He had just had a really dramatic baptism experience. Do you remember that? Where the Holy Spirit in a physical physical form that looked like a bird probably made out of light or something, came coming down out of heaven, rested upon him. A voice boomed out of heaven. I mean, I loved the baptisms we had at the retreat. But imagine how crazy it would have been if as Ellie and Ben and Ani finished giving their testimonies, a giant thunderous voice out of heaven said, Hey, I love these guys. They're my kids. I would have freaked out. So this is his experience. He starts his ministry in this really dramatic way. And then he has just now called the first four of his followers. So everything's starting to ramp up. I don't know about you, but usually when I'm gearing up for the start of something, I don't like to be distracted. I I kind of need to stay focused. I don't want a lot of other things competing for my attention. But in the midst of all of this happening, Jesus and his followers take time to attend a wedding. And because they're all there, his mom, Jesus, even his good friends, it it would suggest that this was not just any wedding. It was the wedding of a close relative or very close friend of the family. And I, I, I just really appreciate the fact that Jesus goes to this thing at a time when I would really be tempted to say, you know, I would love to be there, but I got a lot going on right now. Have you ever said that to people? I would love to be there, but I got a lot going on. Um, and most of the time, that's actually true, and you feel kind of like you got a note from the doctor getting out of class. But Jesus goes. And this wedding, it would serve as the backdrop for the first public miracle that he would perform. Now, in Jesus' day, when there was a wedding, the celebration would last up to about a week. How's that for a reception? And... Um, Listen to this. Back in those days, it wasn't the the father or the bride who had to pay the bills, but the groom himself and his family had to pay all the expenses for this week-long celebration. So it was up to the groom and his family to make sure that everything for the, the refreshments, the wine, the food, it was plentiful and it would last long enough for all the friends and family to celebrate. In fact, it was usually a big community affair, so it was hundreds of people gathering together eating all your food, and drinking all your drink. So if the groom did not plan well and ran out of wine or food, it was a massive social crisis. It was the kind of embarrassment so great in a shame-based culture that, believe it or not, the bride's family could actually sue the groom's family for public embarrassment. It was grounds for a lawsuit. That's how serious this was. I remember getting into a a big argument with a couple during premarital counseling because 
one side of the family, one, the groom's family, wanted to have an open bar, and the bride's side did not. And the heart of the argument was, if we don't have the open bar, we look cheap to all our friends. We have to do it. And I totally get that. That's the same thing. It's a shame-based culture where he goes, we don't want to look bad. It looks like we try to save money rather than to celebrate our loved ones. And so that was the, the heart of why this was so shameful to run out. So when they ran out of wine, and it seems like Mary, it might have been a relative's wedding, because Mary suddenly stands up and takes personal responsibility for this situation. I'm always so thankful for people who, when there's a crisis, without being asked, they just step in and go, you know, let's take care of this. And she steps in, and she, and this is the way she takes care of it. She goes, I'm going to ask Jesus to do something. I also love people who stand up and take responsibility by asking someone else to do something about it. So that's what, G- that's what Mary does. She says, oh my goodness, the wine is gone. And her next sentence is, Jesus, the wine is gone. Now, you, you almost get this feeling that it was so commonplace for Mary to turn to Jesus for everything. Most people believe that by this time in, their, in his life, uh, Jesus' father, Joseph, his earthly father, Joseph, was already dead. In Luke chapter 2, there's a small incident recorded where at the age of 12, Jesus goes with his parents to the temple to worship, and he starts holding court. He starts talking with all the scholars and the priests, and they leave the temple. I don't know if any of you have ever left your kids somewhere, <laughs> thought, thought they were in the car, but they left Jesus at the temple. And after that incident, Joseph is never heard from again. It's like he just got abducted by aliens. He disappears from the whole story. Mary gets mentioned a number of times, but Joseph is out of the picture. So most people guess that he's dead and that Mary is a widow. And just like today, if a woman still has some amount of youthfulness left and she finds herself widowed, her oldest child, usually if she has an older son, that's the go-to person. He becomes like a surrogate husband in the sense that he has to take responsibility for things. And you can imagine, I mean, I think I'm an okay son. This week, I've been kind of mulling that over, and I think maybe I'm not as good a son as I imagine I am. <laughs> Jeannie will tell you, she talks to my parents more often than I do, so I, I don't know how good a son I actually am, but it's made me start thinking about it because i got to imagine one of the things that doesn't get a lot of attention is Jesus was a really good son. He was a really good son. And when Mary did not have Joseph around to turn to, it was instinctive, habitual for her to just always, like habit, just, Jesus, can you, Jesus, can you this, Jesus, can you, and she always turned to him, and he always was there for her. You know, I'm reminded that one of the greatest blessings for a parent is a son or a daughter that is reliable, faithful, no matter what, with joy and a smile on their face, they are always there for you, especially what a blessing that is as you get older. I'm getting a little older. I'm still, I'm still, I think I could take my sons in a fight, but I don't know anymore. But as I get older, I'm telling you right now, and my sons are probably like, I don't think so. But as I get older, I realize what a gift it is and how wise we were to have so many children. If two prove unreliable, we've got two left, spares. You know? So uh, I'm just kidding. They're all great kids. They're all great kids. And it's such a blessing to have children who, when you turn to them, they're reliable, they're dependable, they say, yes, mom, 
yes, Dad. And they really do mean it in their hearts. That's a gift from God. And I've got to imagine that Jesus, all his life, was the uh, ideal son. But then, in this situation, something really weird happens. He responds to his mom in the weirdest way. Instead of saying, Mom, uh, not right now, he says this to her. He says, Woman, why do you involve me? She's like, What? It sounds so rude, so dismissive, disrespectful. And so a lot lot of scholars have wondered about this, have cast theories about what this means. But I think there's a pretty general consensus what all this means. That it's not really that Jesus is being disrespectful to his mother. But you have to think about the stage of his life, where he is now in his life's journey at the inauguration of his earthly ministry. Things are shifting for Jesus. Loyalties, priorities, structures, time, all of that is shifting so that everything is focused at launching this great work for which he had come to be among us. That is not to say that the 30 years prior were useless. I believe he was a blessing to everybody he touched. But he was going public now. And the scale, the scope of his ministry is going to be global in the end. And so as he's beginning this, he says, and he's, he uses a very interesting word. You know how it says woman? We, we use that word too, right? Usually, woman. I, I call Jeannie, Jeannie, unless I want to kind of rebuke her. Like, woman. Now, that's not quite the tone of it. But this word that Jesus uses is not disrespectful, but it's also not very intimate or personal. What Jesus is clearly doing is he's saying, I still respect you, but I'm putting a little bit of distance between you and me now. The nature of our relationship, I still love you, I care about you, hanging on a cross, do you remember? It's recorded that he says to, to John, would you take care of my mom? He's, he's on a cross, crucified, and one of his last thoughts is, someone's got to take care of my mom. That's another thing I really love about the heart of Jesus. So he clearly cares about her, But what he's saying to her is, all my life till now, for 30 years, I have been your faithful son, little Yeshua. I've done everything you asked. I've been a dutiful son. I have always been there for you. But something is changing now. It is far more important that I be an obedient son to my heavenly father at this point than to my earthly mother. Though you are my family by DNA, something else is happening now. And it's important that you know that. I don't think for Jesus this occasion was just a catering disaster. He was using it as an occasion to make a very important statement about the nature of his ministry. And one of the things you'll notice, especially in the Gospel of John, is that none of the miracles that Jesus performs in John's gospel are just naked examples of power, displays of power. He's not just doing magic tricks to show how powerful he is. I I mean, if I had that power, I might just run around and go, let's lift donkeys into the air, and just just as a spectacle, because I can. But he didn't do that. All his miracles, especially in John's gospel, point forward to something significant. They reveal something important about the heart and character of God, and about the nature of the work, the salvation, which Jesus was bringing. So one of the first things we note, the significance of this miracle he performs, is he's showing that I am forming a spiritual family. You know, that word woman, 
is a bit of a distant word. What he's saying is, you're being my mom, though I passed through your womb to enter the earth. It gives you no special status or advantage as far as this new life of faith, this kingdom, and this new family which God is putting together. You've always been my mom, but when it comes to this salvation which God is bringing into the world, your being my mom confers to you no special advantage or status other than you will hear about it more directly than most. But, but Mary could not say at the pearly gates, I don't know about the whole cross stuff, but come on, I'm his mom. I see him right there. Just let me go talk to my son. And I think the guard's going to go, I'm sorry. That's just not how this particular family works. I think what Jesus is trying to say to her is that in this new family, it's the blood I'm going to shed, not the blood we share in our veins that makes us family. There is no special advantage conferred to you or my brothers just because we're related by DNA. In fact, on other occasions when people, you know, Mary and her, his brothers try to presume upon their closeness to him and say, hey, I know he's in a crowded house, everybody's paying attention to him, but where's mom and his brothers? Just let us in. And Jesus says to the messenger from the door, tell them that my mother and my brothers are those who follow and do the will of God. He's not disrespecting the family ties. What he's saying is a new family is forming, and that family is a family formed by faith, not by DNA or the blood that runs in our veins. That's so important, especially for you guys on this side of the room to remember, because you've been brought, whether voluntarily or against your will, you've been brought to church since you were this little, right? You were probably brought to church while you were still an embryo. Your pregnant mother brought you to church in the womb. That's my story. All my life, I was brought to church. But what Jesus is saying is the way this salvation will work, the way belonging in his family will always work, is that no special status is given to us because I grew up in the church or because I knew so-and-so or because I was brought up in a Christian home. Just because in your census form you will check off, you know, in every application um, it says, what is your ethnicity? And, and nowadays it says, prefer not to answer. That was never an option back in the old days. You had to identify yourself. But a lot of forms now that I fill out ask, what is your, your religious background? And maybe in that box you'll check off Christian, but what Jesus is saying is every person on earth in this new family must come into it just as they are standing before Jesus, and give him their full personal faith and trust. Where you came from, where you grew up, what was done for you and to you, what you were brought to, none of that matters quite so much as your personal decision about the claims and the offer and the gift of Jesus Christ. I know what your story has been, but maybe all these years, You've just assumed, I'm a Christian. I mean, duh, I was brought up in a Christian family. We pray before every meal. This is the only religion I know. I've never really been free or or permitted to explore other things. And I understand that that does give you some competitive advantage. I, I really do believe it a little bit. But when you stand before God, every one of us will have to give an answer for what we personally decided about Jesus. That's the only way that we become part of his family. And that's the only way we lay hold of this salvation.
Jesus was also giving us a better cleansing. You know those big water pots, each one about 20 to 30 gallons, all together, what's the math? About 120, 180 gallons. I don't know if you've ever, I, I Googled what does 180 gallons look like, and all I saw was pictures of giant fish tanks. <laughs> Just kept coming up. So it's a lot of water. Okay, it's a lot of water. And these six giant water pots made out of stone, they were used for ceremonial cleansing. It wasn't just like washing your hands before a meal. They were meant to make all the people who were there clean, not just hygienically, but clean morally, clean religiously before God. And Jesus points to those jars, which are not the jars that were used for the wine. I mean, normally, if the wine runs out and you're going to perform a miracle, I would have assumed, line up all the bottles, I'll just fill them. Let's just replenish the supply that ran out. But instead of looking at the the 20 or 30 small wine bottles, he looks at the six giant water pots made for ceremonial washing and goes, let's work with those. And I'm sure the servants are like, that's a lot of wine, dude. I mean, what do you want us to do with that? And they filled it to the brim. So the full volume of 120 to 180 gallons is filled with water, and then by a miracle, it becomes wine. And that's a very significant detail because throughout John's gospel, in fact, throughout the New Testament, wine becomes a symbol for the blood that Jesus would shed at the cross. You remember at the Last Supper, that's what we do at communion, although we use grape juice, but really it it should be wine. Well, I'm not going to say it should be, but it was originally wine. Now, before you get too excited, the wine back in Jesus' day was watered down to about a tenth of what we have today. It was weaker than American beer, okay? So it's pretty weak wine, but still, it was wine. And Jesus said to his friends, whenever you drink this wine, remember what I'm doing, because that wine, which is the color of blood, should remind you that it's my blood that grants you access to God. You can slit your blood and spill it everywhere. You could die a martyr's death, and that sacrifice will mean next to nothing in the final analysis. The only blood that matters is the blood he will shed because it was the only blood that could actually take care of the problem of sin. When Jesus talks about turning water into wine, what he's saying is that water that used to be used for cleansing, I'm replacing with wine because what I'm offering you is a superior cleansing. Now, first of all, I want you to notice something. The sheer quantity of wine says something. Do you know that 180 gallons of wine is enough to pour just over 2,000 four-ounce glasses? I don't know about you, but 2,000 glasses of wine is a lot for a wedding reception. That's enough to get everybody completely hammered every day, all day. There's a lot of donkey accidents on the way home from this wedding. The sheer quantity of what Jesus did was meant to send a message. That the salvation he offers is not stingy, it's abundant, it's plentiful. You know, a lot of people feel like, oh, i got to work up to the point where I can ask God to save me. I'm such a mess, you don't know the things I've done. All those people at church, they're goody-two-shoes types, I know the kind. They've always paid their taxes on time. They always tip the waiter. They always blah, blah, blah. Me, I'm a mess. You don't know the stuff. If I stood on that stage and listed all the bad stuff I did, people would run out of the room. And I get that because the truth is 
I feel that almost every Sunday that I'm preaching. If you really knew what I'm like, you could not listen to me preach. I am only up here because Jesus saved me. I'm not up here because I'm a better person. And what I've learned is that you don't have to beg God to save you. You don't have to bribe him to save you. You don't have to break down the castle walls and try to get a little saving. He wants so much to save us. His salvation is a really generous salvation. He doesn't make you jump through hoops. He doesn't make you prove how faithful you are by going on this thing or doing that thing. He wants to save you before you want to be saved. And the sheer quantity of wine is trying to tell us, I want to pour this out over this whole wedding party. I want everyone to soak in this new wine. And then another thing happens. The MC of the reception, um, he comes up and he goes, hey, I heard some buzz about something wrong with the wine. And they go, no, no, we're fine. Here's the, here's the new wine. And he tastes it and he goes, hey, most people who are smart bring the good stuff out to impress their guests early. And then when everyone's a little buzzed, they bring out the cheap stuff. When no one can say, hey, this is bad wine, they don't know anymore. After the first glass, you, you don't know if it's good wine or bad wine. So that's what he's assuming. He goes, you guys are amazing. You saved the best wine to last. And what that points out is the quality, not just the quantity of this wine, but the quality is meant to send a message as well. And I believe what Jesus is trying to communicate here is not just that God's salvation is generous, but the cleansing he's going to offer at the cross is so much better than the cleansing they had all through Israel's history. The only way a Jew could be clean before God in those days was to sacrifice an animal or to wash with this ceremonial water. And every time they did it, it was temporary. It would have to be done again. And all their lives, Jews felt very much like they were on audition. There was a toiling and toiling every single day to try to be a good person, to do what is right. They would hear their rabbi, their parents, lecture them all day. If a good person would do this, I know, I know. And they lived with that pressure. And to them, what they heard growing up was, you save yourself. You dot your I's, you cross your T's, you do what is right, not what is wrong. Set a good example, watch out for others, blah, 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 blah. And all day long, it was just like you feel the stone heavily pressing down on you. You have to be good enough. You save yourself, and every time you screw up, wash again. Because every cleansing before Jesus was temporary. It would need to be done again and again and again. And the quality of this wine, how far superior it was to the water that was there, even to the wine that was served at first, is meant to tell us the life and the newness of being which Jesus offers is so much better than the endless, frustrating, tedious toil of trying to be a good person. What he's saying is, it is so much better to let me make you into a new person from the inside and out than to work all your life as hard as you can to be a decent human being. 
The cleansing I'm offering is not a cleansing for this hour, this meal, this day. It's a cleansing that is once and for all time. I will declare you righteous enough to stand before God without shame. To say in the presence of God, I have the right to be here, to ask you things, to tell you that you're my father, that I have a place and a right to be in your family. That's a massive statement that Jesus is making. And what he's saying is, Judaism was okay. It got people through. It held society together. But it is nothing compared to what is being offered in what he's going to do. See, it's so important for us to get a handle on this. That there is a pseudo-Christianity that is just like a new Judaism. It's like a Western version, an evangelical Christian version of Islam or Buddhism or any other religion that says you have to work really awfully hard all the time to be a good person. And at the end of the day, when you die, who knows? We'll see. We'll see if when you die and then you wake up again, you're in a good place or a bad place. Whether you're reborn as a donkey or a cockroach or, a, or David Beckham. I don't know what you're going to be. And that is such a life-defeating, exhausting, deadening way to live. What's so sad is that in churches everywhere, people still live like that and call it Christianity. Many people have gone to church for years and toiled and toiled at trying to be better and found that they can't do it. It's just so frustrating. They go, I can't do it. I just like the bad stuff. I don't like the good stuff. I only do the good stuff as long as I'm living at home because they make me and I have to do it. But as soon as I'm out, oh man, watch out. I'm just going to do what I want to do. I felt that when I was 18. I wasn't sad at all the day my parents dropped me off at college. They were crying. I was like, yes! Free at last. Free at last. I grew up that way, thinking. I'm told all the time to be a good person. I really suck at it. I'm so bad at this. And after a while, you just want to stop. And I'm telling you, I agree with you. Jesus is telling you he agrees. Stop trying so hard to be good. There is effort in Christianity. I'm not saying you just lay around and say, all right, Jesus, may be good. There is effort, but not until Jesus enters your life and from the depths of who you are, switches something and begins to make you new. He doesn't just tackle your behavior. He tackles your nature. What it says is, he he doesn't say, the old habits have gone, the new habits have come. What he says is, the old person is gone, a new person is found in their place. He makes you new inside and out, not outside in, which is the way all religion works. So this cleansing which Jesus offers is such a better life than the religion most of us are drawn to. And if that, if that describes you, if you've been in church all your life and none of this ever really felt real to you, it doesn't excite you, you're far more animated when you're on vacation, when you're surfing the web, when you're watching the new Marvel blockbuster movie. If those things get you, and if, if all you ever hear is try, 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 and you're like, I can't, I'm not good, I don't want to. I'm inviting you to stop trying so hard to be good 
And instead, in humility, ask Jesus to flip a switch inside you that you can't flip for yourself. Aren't you tired of people telling you how you should act when inside it never feels like that's who you're becoming? And I experienced that. At age 17, Jesus forgave me. He accepted me into his family. But he did something else that I wasn't expecting. He began to profoundly change certain things deep in my nature. I didn't have to work at it. And I've shared with you before, one of them was profanity. Oh, my gosh, I, I loved swearing so much when I was younger. I told you guys before, I, I was the Michelangelo of cussing. I was so good, people would tell their friends, hey, say it again, just like you did before. And now it's swearing, they're like, oh, my, how does this guy do it? It's so insulting. And yet so fun. And I loved it. And, I, and when I got angry, the first thing that would come out of my mouth was just this toxic stream of profanity. When I was mad at a person, I would shred them with words. And the day I became a Christian, something strange flipped inside of me. And occasionally, the swearing still wants to come out. But it was remarkable how quickly that toxicity departed from me, and I couldn't understand it. I still had lots of other things I struggled through, don't get me wrong. But it was my first taste of this newness of life, this thing Jesus talks about, which I heard about and never experienced, which is that I was being made into a new person. That was a miracle. I, I was amazed at what it felt like, not just to be good by effort, but to be made good from the inside out by a supernatural intervention from God. Let me give you one last observation from this text. That in turning the water into wine, Jesus was strengthening their faith. Strengthening their faith. Turn to your neighbor to your left and right, and if they are catching a nap, just gently tickle their kneecap. Wake them up. I want you to hear this last little bit. If you're confused by what comes next, just go back to the, the app and listen to the last 10 minutes. It'll mean something to you. Jesus was strengthening their faith. Look at what it says in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And the result is, his disciples believed in him. Don't miss the power of those words. Just because they sound bible don't just gloss over them. What John is explaining is that the purpose of Jesus' miracles is to do two things, to reveal his glory and then to help people put their full belief in him. And that's important because the four guys that were there at this wedding party with him they were the first four disciples called. It was cool because the first, he, he found one guy, and that guy went and got his friend or his brother, and then he got another guy, and that guy went and got a friend. So he, he really just called two, and those two called two more, so he got four. It's buy one, get one free date at the disciple store. And so he got four disciples, and they're following him, and, and those four disciples, they had followed him entirely as an act of faith. They had heard John the Baptist give a witness, a testimony about Jesus, and entirely on faith, they just started to follow him. 
John the Baptist said, this is the one we've been waiting for. They looked in his eyes. I don't know if you ever watched Curb Your Enthusiasm, but you know how Larry David stares in people's eyes when he's trying to figure out if they're lying? I feel like that's what they did to Jesus. Like, okay, so a lot of false messiahs have come and gone. Are you? And he looked right back at him. I think something clicked. They're like, this dude, is, he gives me the tingles. He's real. And without any real evidence yet, they just said, he is the one we believe. We don't know why we believe, but we felt drawn to him. We're just going to start walking with him. And that was to their credit because it says those who believe without seeing, there's a, a kind of special nature to that faith. Blessed are those who haven't seen but still believe. And they, they, they followed him on faith alone. But Jesus, in his love for them, said, that was the hardest part was for you to just put your faith in me. But I'm not going to leave you struggling every day with your doubts. Doubt is always a part of being a Christian. Can I just affirm you in this? If you have doubts about all of this, the Bible, the Christian gospel, all of it, I want you to know I still do too. Doubt will always be a part of being a Christian. And the best way to handle doubt is simply to say, God, help me. I'm struggling with this. I'm not really sure if I feel like this is real. I, I've walked this far with you. You've shown so much to me, but today I'm really struggling with unbelief, with questions. Help me with my unbelief and my doubt. Show me something that restores my confidence in you. And it's amazing how little we pray that prayer, but when we do, God really shows up. What he's doing for them here, he's saying, you guys started following me simply because John said I'm the one. Now I'm going to do something that will help you see that you've made the right choice. See, I don't believe miracles by themselves can create faith. Lots of people have seen miraculous things and gone on to stop believing in God. I've known lots of people who I used to be deeply related to, close with. We talked about faith. We prayed together. We, we were truly brothers and sisters. And 10 years later, they could not want anything to do with Jesus. They saw everything I saw. I watched miracles happen in their own lives. In some cases, miraculous change, but in some cases, actual miracles. Stuff that make the hair on our neck stand up. Things that were supernatural that we couldn't explain. We saw them together, and yet they left Jesus. I don't believe miraculous signs by themselves do anything to us to produce brand new faith. But I believe that when we have faith in Jesus and begin to follow him in faith, he often shows us miracles as a way of affirming and strengthening the faith already given. What he's saying to us is, you followed me on faith. I'm going to show you that that faith is not misplaced. I am who I say I am. And I have compassion on you. And I know you will doubt. So I want you to see right now in this place, in this way, that I am he. See, everybody at that wedding saw the miracle. But not everybody saw the glory. That's why it says, The whole wedding party didn't believe, but it says his disciples believed in him. It's one thing to see a miracle and talk all day long about, dude, if there was YouTube, everyone would be like, check this out, check this out. Used to be water, now it's wine. How do you explain that? It would have fooled Penn and Teller for sure. Sorry. I've been watching some Penn and Teller videos, so. It would have fooled them. 
people would have talked about it and most would have went, well, eh, that's pretty cool. What does it really have to do with life? See, you can see God at work every day and miss the glory. At the end of the day, you have some interesting stories and no belief. I think this describes so many people in churches today. Every day they see God working, they see the actual work, but they're missing the glory. They don't realize what they're seeing. They just see things happening and they miss the wonderful God who's revealing himself through it. For 17 years of my life, I saw church all the time. I was surrounded by Christian people doing Christian things and saying Christian words and I missed Jesus completely for 17 years. I had no idea who he was. And then one day, just like that, at a retreat that I'd gone to to pick up girls. What an idiot. And just like that, one day, switch flips, and I see. I just see. And I've never been the same since that day. I saw things all my life, but I missed the glory. But that day, August of 1984, I saw the glory, and it marked me. And once you see it, you could wander, but you'll never unsee it. It will always be a part of you. He will always be a part of you. If this describes your story, and I suspect it does for some of you, if you're one of those people who has come to church faithfully week after week, or even just faithfully agreed to be brought to church week after week, you're missing the best part if you don't see the glory. It's like sitting backwards in a movie theater and hearing the sounds. It's how I feel when I'm driving my old minivan and the kids and Jeannie are in the back watching a movie and I feel so jealous because I'm the driver and at every red light, what do I do? I lean the seat back, let me just watch a little bit. It's like hearing the sounds of other people living and missing the actual thing. Frustrating, confusing. If you've been at church for so long and never understood what everyone was so worked up about, never saw the God behind all these things we do, then it's a simple prayer that I think could change your life. Say, God, show me your glory. Open my eyes. The day I got saved in 1984, believe it or not, that's the one prayer I prayed. I was watching my fellow youth group students cry, snot. I'm like, what is happening? These are normal teenagers. They can't be this good at faking. Why do they look like they're so enraptured with God? It's just praying. I didn't understand it, and a thought sees me. What if there is something there, and I'm the one missing it? So I remember just over and over sitting in place that, God, if you're real, show me. If you're real, show me. I mean, I'm tired of sitting in this room there's no one to play basketball with. There's no free time. They're making us sit in the stupid room and pray for four. You guys have to understand, youth retreats back in my day, prayer time ended at 3 a.m. 
ridiculous when I think about it. But we would go four, five, six hours praying. And if you weren't a Christian, it was the worst six hours of your life. That's what it was. I was like, this stinks. This, what is this? And I finally said, let's stop fighting it. If there's something here, if you are real, I clearly haven't seen what they saw. It was like a, when Harry met Sally moment. I have what she's having. I wanted that. And I asked. And that's the way I asked. If there is something I'm not seeing, please show me. Because I'm so sick of not seeing it and still having to sit in this place. I feel like I'm the guy sitting backwards at the movie theater. And all I hear is the sounds. And I don't see any of the picture. I need to see now. I'm tired of not seeing. And just like that, God swiveled my chair and I saw. And that could happen for you too. It begins with a simple prayer of humility and dependence. Just say, God, I want to see if there is something here. If you are really here, I very much would like to see you the way all Christians have seen you through the ages. Will you show me what I'm missing? Show me what the point of all this is. I want to be a part of it if it's real. And I believe if you consistently and humbly pray that prayer, at some point along the way, God's going to give you the same miracle he gave me at the age of 17. And he's going to save you. And he's going to open your eyes. And you will no longer just see the miracles, you will see the glory. And it will change you forever. I'm going to invite us to just bow our heads now. And I feel like it's important for each of us, where we are spiritually, to just respond to God right now. We won't pray long. We don't have a whole lot of time. But here's what I'm going to ask you to pray. Okay? Just a simple, simple prayer. Especially if this describes you, that if you really had your choice, you probably wouldn't be here in this room in this building this morning. Not because you're a bad person, but because you really haven't seen what this is all about yet. If you are the person sitting backwards in the movie theater and you have not seen the glory of God, I want to invite you to pray that simple prayer right now. And I'm not promising you that something amazing will happen, but it's the beginning of a posture that invites God into your life. And if he really is God, you don't want to spend your life without him. I can promise you that much. So I'm going to ask you to take your first step and ask for that. It's such a simple prayer. Open my eyes. Help me see you. If you know Jesus, but you haven't seen his face in a really long time, pain, life, whatever has gotten in the way, that's a prayer you can also pray. Show me your glory because I see your works, but I'm missing the glory. Remind me who you are. You are my king, my savior. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.